Hello friends, I'm excited to tell you about our end of year matching fund drive. Generous supporters have gotten together and pledged to match every dollar given to Signpost In between now and December 27th up to $10,000. Your support is crucial to our ongoing ministry, and now you can double your impact by visiting signpostin.org/donate and giving a special gift today. Please join us and help us continue being a welcoming space for those who need the incarnate grace of hospitality. Visit signpostin.org/donate and double your gift. Hey everybody, Peter Gamble here, just editing the podcast and wanted to hop in to say that this will be our last episode of 2023. We won't be releasing our regular bi-weekly episode during the week of Christmas, and this is going to be our episode that closes us out for the year. Um, you can be sure to look for us in the new year on Friday, January 5th, and uh, we'll look forward to catching you then. We pray that each of you have a Merry Christmas and a happy new year. Welcome everyone to the Signpost End podcast. My name is Brandon Booth, and my guest today is Dr. Peter Mawish. Peter is a native of Southern Poland, and he grew up in the only Polish-speaking territory where the Lutheran Reformation reached the grassroots, and where Lutheranism prevailed even against the adverse conditions of the Habsburg Counter-Reformation. Peter completed his bachelor degree in Poland before moving on to Cambridge and eventually to America, where he earned his Master's of Divinity at Concordia Seminary in Fort Wayne, and then his doctorate in Systematic and Historical Theology from Harvard University. Peter currently teaches History and Doctrine at Samford University's Beeson Divinity School and has graciously, and perhaps even courageously, agreed to talk to me today about his article on death, dying, and dying well. Peter, it's good to see you. Thanks for being with me on the back porch here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Um, We've known each other for a while, kind of at a distance. Um, And so it's fun to actually get you on here to talk about this particular article, which is something I've really wanted to talk about for a while now. Um, I think, oddly enough, death and dying is something we need to talk more about and we don't. Um, and some of my listeners know that in college, I made my way through college by working at a funeral home. So it was something I talked mm. about and thought about a lot. Um, and, and I think it was really good for me, but before we jump into that, I'd love if you just tell us a little bit about yourself when you're not, when you're not thinking about death and dying, what are you actually enjoying? What are you doing? Well, um, you could say that I'm actually thinking about sort of what it means to live to, to live your life well. Um, mm. uh, what is a well-lived life, uh, not just philosophically speaking, but also from a Christian perspective. Mm. Um, I suppose uh, what that practically looks like, um, among other things, I very much enjoy spending time with my students, um, enjoying all kinds of fellowship. Um, I enjoy good conversation. Uh, and very often uh, you might find me if you're looking well, um, somewhere on the trails with a backpack and a tent, and uh, my dog backpacking or hiking either here in the uh, Smokies or um, further afield out west. Yeah. It, remind me of your dog's name because uh, listen. Charlie. Charlie, that's right. Peter visited us and brought his dog. And uh, I actually have some funny pictures of your dog and our, our new puppy, Maple. <laughs> they, lo- they loved each mm. other. They did. <laughs> so. Um, that's awesome. 
it, Peter, this is sort of out of left field, but again, before we jump into the article, one of the things I was kind of curious about was given your background, I'm coming from Poland, the, the European perspective, we kind of talked about this, I think when you were here, but I'm just curious, has that given you a different perspective on any of the like theological issues or, or maybe even broader issues that we are, we're sort of obsessed with here in America? Um, that's kind of a difficult question, uh, in the sense that, you know, I have done my entire theological education in, uh, mostly in, well, I should say in America, with the exception of that year in Cambridge and, mm -hmm. uh, a sabbatical in the UK. So in a sense, I'm kind of returning now theologically to the European context, but, uh, but there are, there are certain, um, aspects of life or stereotypes that I guess people would say, you know, uh, Europeans tend to be maybe a little bit more somber, um, a little bit of a longer perspective on the tradition. Uh, you know, we just um, commemorated All Saints. Uh, and in Poland, for example, that is, and that's Poland and also Central Europe, the tradition is to visit the uh, grave sites of your relatives and sometimes even friends and to light candles. And it's a pretty big thing. Uh, you can tell a cemetery from a mile off because of the glow in the sky, especially in the evening. Um, so there's certainly, uh, again, I'm saying that somewhat generally and stereotypically, death certainly has more of a presence in Europe, especially in, again, countries like perhaps Poland that were more than, more than usually afflicted by war, mm -hmm. um, uh, changing borders and so on and so forth. But but even even outside of that, there is sort of a tradition of remembering the dead, which I don't think is as cultural in the US as it is in Poland. I mean, here we sort of poke fun at death. Uh, if you think of Halloween. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, and incredibly relevant, actually, to the topic. I, the interesting... I hadn't really put the idea that we poke fun at death, but that's, no, I think that's. I mean, I think it's a way of sort of taming it um, without quite realizing how in many ways serious it is and how also from a Christian perspective, again, unserious and defeated it also mm -hmm. is, how it sort of makes a mockery of our lives. So, um, yeah, I would just, I would just say that, you know, there's, uh, th there's, there's nothing wrong with sort of, laughing at it. Uh, but I think even that requires a certain kind of maybe theological astuteness, uh, reckoning with it, and at the same time realizing that it is something uh, that has conclusively been relegated to the sphere of nothingness, where it belongs, even though it still asserts itself in our lives. Mm. Well, I mean, that, okay, yeah, that just launches us right into the article. I think that's where you start <laughs> that idea of nothingness the the death death is something we can't really put within the confines of our life and understanding so to speak can you say a little bit more about how that works like how does death force us i think into a way of without the theological framework of thinking about life as life for its own sake does that does that make sense i suppose you could say that um how we live our lives if we don't sort of do that with any sort of theological considerations, we either run away from death, ignore it, or laugh at it, 
but in such a way that it's not certainly put out of existence. It's certainly not relegated to nothingness by means of um, our efforts. We very often simply want to forget about it. Um, we don't know how to, you know, and, and you could talk about sort of, you know, being in the presence of people that die. Today that happens very often in nursing homes, uh, not all that often at home. Uh, bodies don't stay at home. Um, it's professionals that take care of them, right? We, in a sense, we have um, professionalized death and relegated it to uh, the margins, but that obviously doesn't mean that, that it's not there um, just by virtue of sort of closing your eyes to it and even laughing at it. Again, you don't put it out of existence and you certainly don't relegate it to the non-being where it belongs. And uh, let me just say this one thing, because there are obviously philosophical attempts to tame the thought of death. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the two philosophical attempts that I think are pretty formidable that I mention in my article um, uh, are by the German philosopher Martin Heidegger and then the Austrian-American sociologist Peter Berger, right? Heidegger says that we live our lives in a very unreflective sort of way. We don't, we, we, we don't ponder the question sort of what constitutes a well-lived life, and we certainly don't linger much on the question of what death is. And uh, there is sort of kind of an, well, I would say there is an encouragement on Heidegger's part to really face up to the fact of our mortality. He says, our mortality is there. It's not gonna get away. And instead of sort of being immersed in the crowd, instead of sort of doing what everybody does, instead of what he calls idle chatter, that seems to mm -hmm. kind of paste over uh, the fact that mortality is all around us, uh, we can rise up above it all and sort of courageously face to our mortality and really make the most of the short span of life that we've been given. Um, Heidegger encourages a life lived, what I would say, in protest, right? In protest mm -hmm. against um, the sort of glib forgetfulness of death, and in some sense what constitutes, or what is a kind of a, a precondition for a life well lived is the realization of its utter and unmitigated finitude mm. that forces me to make the most, not, not for myself, but really sort of to, you know, in a way where I, I endow my life with a certain kind of courage and a certain kind of dignity. So that's Heidegger. And then we have another kind of uh, way of managing death that's put forth by Peter Berger. Uh, Peter Berger uh, speaks not so much of individuals as of societies in their totality, as constituting a certain kind of theodicy, right? The, the very fact that we have um, uh, what he calls nomos, um, sets of conventions, mores, laws, customs, and so on and so forth, is a way of keeping death at bay. Now, it certainly is going to come and get us, and there's really no, no hope as such, but what survives is uh, the people as such, right? What survives is, um, uh, is a certain kind of meaning-making project mm. that the entirety of the community engages in, that the entire society engages in. Um, 
you know, Berger says, obviously, it's a, it's a very precarious kind of project because it all hangs on what he calls a thin thread of conversation. That is, we have to keep talking. We have to sort of keep enchanting death uh, or charming it, you might say, to keep it at bay. But as long as, as, long as um, the community persists, despite of eruptions of chaos uh, that threaten with meaninglessness, uh, we have succeeded. So mm-hmm. it's sort of interesting to think that, again, um, even these postures of protest are still very much beholden to and oriented towards death. Uh, yeah. there's, a, there's an attempt to, to, in some sense, carve out some uh, modicum of meaning, some um, assemblage of meaning for my own life or for society at large, but, but to get it from death itself. Um, right. Yeah. Okay, so let me try to boil this down and tell me if that's what I'm hearing, if I'm hearing it right. It's, and this is the reason I think we need to be having these conversations in the Christian communities more clearly is because here's the reality death is going to get us all. Mm-hmm. And I, what I've heard you describe is there's, there's kind of so far these three answers that, that aren't Christian or aren't theological really, but one is you sort of just frivolously try to ignore it. You distract yourself Correct. from it. Yes. You laugh at it. You whatever. You basically just. Well, no pun intended. You amuse yourself to death. Yeah, right. Yeah. Distra- yeah, exactly. You distract yourself from it because you don't want to think about the question that, it, that death forces you to ask, which is essentially what, what the heck is life for? Like, what am I going to do with this? Mm-hmm. And then there's, that's where the other two answers I hear coming in. Heidegger is essentially saying something like, yeah, that you need to face up and ask that question. What are you doing with your life given that you only have so much time? So do something courageous, valuable, authentic. That, yeah, that elevates you above the day, the crowd, right? Yeah, right. Do something the, the better vain, than... The vain and idle talk. Right. Um, and then the other answer that Berger gives is it's sort of like, you and this is the part I'm not sure I quite understand, but it's as long as you're in a community, a church, or whatever a group, then life is sort of like for the group. Like you, it, what matters is the survival of the group, the survival of the conversation, and you then have some sort of context and meaning because you're in that group. Is that Berger's answer? Yes, the, the entire group. So instead of Heidegger's answer is very existentialist and very individualistic. Make meaning for yourself. Yeah. Uh, Berger says, uh, no, the group should become sort of more conscious of what it does in a way. The entire social project is sort of an undertaking in face of death. Yeah. Um, it's, a way, it's a way to carve out some meaning yeah. from the kind of meaninglessness that always threatens us and that actually sort of makes inroads into this social project. I mean, uh, I think for, for anybody who has lost someone, uh, we kind of realize just how much that moment is an intrusion of meaninglessness. We ask ourselves, you know, why? Uh, even if it's a life well lived and a full life, mm-hmm. we might say sort of with, with the Old Testament, right? It, we still ask ourselves, why? What is, the, what is the purpose of that? And so on and, and so on and so forth. So um, I, think for, I think for both of them, it's really quite precarious, but for Berger, even more so, because again, it is predicated on the entire community coming together with its customs of sort of taming death, letting go of death, um, 
uh, it all hangs on a thin thread of conversation. And we could sort of paraphrase that, you know, in terms of what Halloween is, it's sort of it, ha it all hangs on the on the thin thin uh, thread of laughter, mm -hmm. right? As long as you can sort of laugh and keep keep laughing. But but the question then is sort of what if you what if you can't? And death seems to be the inevitable that you can't escape, which eventually you can't. I mean, eventually you can't keep laughing. Right. You can you can you cannot keep laughing. And it's and and, and death is a um to use kind of a, a technical term, mathematical term, absurd, right? There is sort of uh no particular justification for it. Mm. Right? It sort of seems to be um it latches onto things, but in in itself it's rather difficult to understand or or even imagine. There is no there's no way we can sort of um face up to it really um because to give a justification would simply mean that somehow it belongs it it is essential and such attempts have you know have been made but i think a lot of them boil down to to this uh, uh butler quote you know that's the way of all flesh right kind of live again no pun intended live with it and this is kind of jumping ahead but i hope it's helpful for listeners the reason all of this is problematic right now is when we talk about death being kind of the ultimate nothing, the ultimate absurdity, it's it's because like, from what I understand, the we're operating in this framework that it's just the end. It's like the end of something mm -hmm. and there's nothing past yeah. it. There, So you can't imagine, I've often kind of joked about this, like, you know, in a purely atheistic worldview, death is the end of consciousness. And you can't imagine mm -hmm. that is what you just said any more than you can imagine what it was like before you were had, before you had consciousness as a child, right? Like mm -hmm. there, there's nothing there to imagine. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so we, okay. So we, as long as that's what death is, there's this, it, it's inexplicable. It's unjustified. It's just sort of something that's going to happen, whether you like it or not. And we have these attempts to live with it. But you make a really interesting point that essentially all of these things force us into living a life for life's sake, for like um, mm -hmm. a bare life, I think is kind of how you put it. Mm -hmm. um, first, could you briefly explain that? But then also you say that that's dehumanizing. And I'm curious as to why that is. Okay, let let me unpack that because there's a, there's a number of sort of strands with uh, uh, within your question. Um, maybe if I sort of take a step back and answer the question, sort of what led me to the writing of this paper. Yeah. Um, uh, it was a certain kind of um, dissatisfaction with how Christians talk about salvation. Hmm. You know, if you recall, one of the very first uh, conflicts. Uh, crises in the church in the middle of the second century had to do with the inroads of what collectively are described Gnostic sects or Gnostic modes of thinking, which basically presented life itself as sort of beyond redemption, uh, life in the realm of matter as we live it, and thought of or spoke of the Savior the Christ as this sort of spiritual figure coming from above, using a man named Jesus as a mouthpiece 
and really awakening us to our spiritual calling, which is that we don't belong here, and that salvation can only be found outside of this world in the realm of the spirit, beyond matter, that we need to shed our bodies, leave, it, leave all of it behind. And again, to put it very crudely, to get the hell out of here. Um, yeah. But uh, because this is sort of living hell, um, right? Yeah. And Christians very early on realized that this is not, we cannot go along with it because salvation is not just something out of this worldly. It really, it really embraces this life. Uh, when Christ comes proclaiming the kingdom, this has to do with the fact that God has not abandoned his creation. This creation does not belong to some alien God. It's not uh, a matter of some kind of cosmic accident that the world of matter, the universe, came into being. Uh, but rather, that it is God's, and God himself will seek to remake it and to, um, and to redeem it and to save it, and that this repair work has already been decisively undertaken, and you might say even concluded, in the body of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, so when, when you take that kind of a perspective on salvation, that it is not just a ticket that I get for a train that will come in the future once it comes, but rather that something great is underway, and that, in the, and that even in this life we are partakers of this salvation, then you have to ask yourself, what does that mean for us? And then uh, how we live our lives, does it make a difference, right? Is it, does it sort of impact, does salvation impact our life in the here and now? Um, can we already live as those who, you might say, have eternal life? Who, even though in some biological sense, death is still ahead of us, we are also, we are also with Christ insofar as we are in Christ on the other side of death, right? That, that we are sort of awaiting the resurrection of all flesh, but we are already grounded in Christ and we have eternal life. Um, you know, you could boil it down to Jesus' uh, statement in the Gospel of John uh, that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But obviously, know it here and now in such a way that it sort of turns their lives inside out. So, when you think of salvation as already embracing us here and transforming us here, even though, like I said, biologically we are on this side of death, you have to ask yourself, then when uh, the more fundamental question, even before we get to death, what constitutes true life, mm. right? Is true life only a certain kind of biological existence that I have? Or is true life a little bit more than that? Um, something that whatever theological image you use uncoils my being, something that um, transforms me inside out in such a and, and something that is way way different from simply the courage to face up to my mortality, uh, oh, as we yeah. that we see in Heidegger and so on and so forth. So when you ask yourself the question about what constitutes true life, yeah, the 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 life of the believer, the life of the saved, and so on and so forth, um, then you have to ask yourself then what exactly is death. And is not perhaps our running away from it, or even our courageous running into it, simply a perpetuation of the reign of death? Isn't death not just the end of life, but a certain, but a certain kind of shape that our lives have 
till uh, till they are transformed, till they become sort of part, you know partakers, or we become partakers of salvation, mm-hmm. right? So so thinking of death as not just a biological end, but also as something that profoundly structures our lives, whether in forgetfulness and running away, or in a certain kind of courageous posture towards it. Um, mm-hmm. What are the, you know, I, I use the phrase phenomena of death. What are the phenomena of death that we perpetuate in this life, even as we try to sort of keep death at bay, um, ignore it, suppress it, uh, tame it, domesticate it, and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, and then you could sort of say, then, then you could really ask yourself, okay, so what is, uh, what is human life? in its kind of human dimension, in what sense is it a life in death? And then in what sense is it a life in life? Um, and, and, and here we get into, um, uh, you know, only the kind of answers that you might say are, are, are specific to humans in their kind of human spiritual dimension, not just in their, in their biology. Yeah. There was a lot there. Um, and I think the, the connection, the light bulb that went on for me was, okay, so when, when the salvation, when, when Christ's work is not just something that's happening in the future that I'm waiting for, and it really has, you know, okay, so let me kind of back it up and try to say it in my own words. There is a way of thinking about this life, even as Christians, which is I get saved, whatever that means, and nothing changes here and now. Correct. I have the ticket. Yeah. The only thing that changes is that I will eventually escape this sort of worldly living hell that I'm in, and then things will be fine, and that's when it is. But but that's it. Like The only thing that's changed mm-hmm. is sort of yeah. the future destination. Nothing has changed now. And what you're saying is... There's, there's a, the way Christ actually talks, the, the thing that he actually means is that the eternal life, the life that is lived from Christ through the spirit or, or the spirit lives through us, maybe is a better way to say it, actually does start now. Mm-hmm. And the part, I guess then the part that I'm wanting to understand better is you talk about death being something that now becomes a way that's sort of a pattern for our life. That's the, mm-hmm. I'm not quite following on that. How does, how, explain that. How does death now it, in this new way of thinking about salvation become a pattern? Oh, so no, so it's, it's just the opposite. So death okay. is, death is a pattern precisely when I think of it as really being the one and only given. Right. And, and, and in that sense, you could say that my entire life is a life towards death, but also even perhaps more um, in a more sinister way. Uh, it's also a life that actively perpetuates patterns of death or phenomena of death. And then you could say that when I gain eternal. So what what then what then is eternal life? Um, I don't think you simply want to say that eternal life is more of the same. Mm. Eternal life is also a life of a vastly different quality, right? And that quality is radically, radically discontinuous, Mm. certainly with the kind of idle chatter and running away from death, 
but it's also discontinuous with uh, facing courageously up to death because that still regards death as a given, right? I'm just facing up to it, right? And here you might say eternal life uh, is a mode of living that starts here and now. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of life uh, whereby you could say that in the midst of death, we are in life. Uh, there's a, there was a very famous medieval antiphon, which Martin Luther made into a hymn, and it stated, in the midst of, um, in the midst of life, we are in death, mm. right? It was sort of a, a hymn kind of reminding us that we are all mortal um, and that we won't be able to escape death. But you could say what happens with Christ is a certain kind of reversal. In the midst of death, we are in life. Um, and that is not just a promise of more of the same, as if we were just kind of extending the axis of time into infinity. Mm. It's, a, it's a very different mode of living. Um, and, okay, so that, uh, yeah, let me interrupt you there. So that's where kind of the dehumanizing thing comes in. In other words, that when, when death is the given, there's an end that, that's, it's all over. I've got to either face up to it and be courageous. I've got to be a part of this continuing conversation, or I just have to ignore it. Then, then the kind of life that I'm going to live in the face of that mm -hmm. is, is doesn't matter how courageous I am. It is still kind mm -hmm. of fundamentally selfish or well i would say it's structured by death and the inevitability of death and the intractability of death um right and we could i mean i can give you i can give you some examples of that to maybe make it a little bit more concrete um because i would say that in some sense our entire yeah. way of going about life uh is to do so by means of death right i mean mm. again the most explicit example would be, you know, situations of conflict um, uh, that very often sort of lead to a threat removal, even uh, uh, sort of the killing of the other, right? We, we all know how, um, you know, victimizers, people who resort to death, or even simply disrespect for life as such, right? Mm -hmm. um, for the life of the other. Mm -hmm. uh, who people who uh, are victimizers? They really sort of they really deprive themselves of their own humanity mm. by by virtue of sort of their inhuman treatment of the other. They also make possible an inhuman treatment of themselves. So you could say victimizers dehumanize themselves. Um, victims are certainly dehumanized, right? Life doesn't mean very much, or your life doesn't mean very much. Um, Right, uh, and you could say, then victims themselves, very likely will become will become victimizers if they get a chance. Right, and we sort of uh, death becomes kind of an, an echoing pattern within which we sort of um, uh, live our lives, uh, insofar as they are really kind of oriented to survival and outliving. Mm. Right, the person the person that wins the game of life is the person who survives, who outlives the others, who out, outrun, outruns the others, and so and so on and so forth. Right. But you could say, OK, so that's but that doesn't happen everywhere. Sure. Our world is very conflict ridden. There's all kinds of places, um, including uh, Palestine right now uh, and Israel. Uh, but does that really apply to all of us? 
Um, and you know, one of the one of the statements that really, since I've quoted John's Gospel, that that persistently come to mind, and I think are somewhat um, illustrative of just this preponderance of death insofar as our way of perpetuating life is what the high priest says twice about Jesus in the Gospel of John. It is better for this man to die than for the people to perish, right? The survival of the people necessitates death. In some sense, we save ourselves by a sacrifice of a vulnerable person, right? Mm. Uh, but think about simply something maybe a little that seemingly seems uh, uh, more innocuous, right? Um, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs, um, right? You say, well, there is no progress without collateral damage. Um, there is no comfort without disposal. Um, there is no prosperity without sacrifices mm. um, or streamlining or uprooting, right? You could say there is no revolution without enemies, mm -hmm. but also no status quo without losers. Um, right? There is no victory without casualties, and certainly there is no peace without war. Um, right? And, it, and that makes sense to us, right? We, mm -hmm. we use death as a way of, um, of, of, perpetuating, um, of perpetuating life. Of, 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 we survive by means of death. Um, we, you could say, maybe this, this is to add to our phrases that we've been developing. We not only laugh at death, we not only run away with it, but we also flirt with it, mm. uh, thinking that we can tame it, that we can wield it for the sake of something better. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's rather uh, sinister. Um, but then you could also say, I don't know, uh, maybe I'll let you respond and, and, and we can also talk about sort of even more mundane aspects of, of this kind of life lived in death, even before death comes or even way before death comes. Yeah. Well, I, the difficulty sometimes I think is the, there we're using the word life and death in different, I don't know, domains mm -hmm. almost. Um, uh -huh. Because the, when death is the dominant paradigm that I operate under, which mm -hmm. that is the world, the fallen world of sin, <laughs> mm -hmm. then whatever I mean by life, it doesn't mm -hmm. mean what Jesus meant by eternal life. It means sort of this extending my biological existence mm -hmm. for a little bit longer. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. maybe it means some sort of pleasure or happiness. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that's that's exactly sort of what's um, what's come into view, according to some philosophers today. Um, uh, for example, uh, there's an Italian philosopher, Giorgio Agamben, who talks about, and this is the phrase you used earlier, the bare life, mm. that at the end of modernity, in late modernity, our project, oddly enough, has simply um, been reduced to sustaining the bare life, which is entertaining ourselves to death, right? Attending to sort of the desires of the flesh, to something very basic. We've, we, we no longer agree on any set of common ideals, so we cannot sort of put a facade, mm. however courageous, mm. uh, on this uh, on how we live our lives. Um, so we, we basically, you know, um, uh, think of life as simply sort of more more of more of the same. And mm. you know, sure, we've made our lives easier. Um, uh, we live longer. Mm -hmm. But again, it doesn't it doesn't mean that 
uh, it, it's kind of odd if, if you know, Agamben is to be believed, and I think he is, uh, that, that really sort of survival and a long life seems to be um, kind of, a, you know, a virtue. That's what we aspire to. That's, uh, that's what we seek from technology um, without asking ourselves what constitutes a life well lived. Right. And even, even so, I'm starting to connect, and I think I'm starting to see how it doesn't really matter how you do it. You're always living a life that is sort of structured by the assumption of death. Everything mm -hmm. requires the death of something. Everything mm -hmm. requires the down, the, you know, from the big conflicts down to, I, I think the one you said that really yeah. captured me was like prosperity requires sacrifice. And we just, mm -hmm. that's just the given. We just assume that it, we're trying to extend this, this thing that I currently have. And the only way we think we can do it is in the pattern of killing other things. I would say even even more strongly, it's not it's not just structured by death, uh, which we we have said earlier, but it's all we actively perpetuate it. Yeah, right? we we prolong life by means of death, um, and it, it it you know so. Uh, and that, I think that's our ultimate kind of paradox that we cannot think of salvation in any other way than by wielding power over death, but really sort of succumbing to it. I feel like this is the place to make a turn then and ask, can you contrast now? Can you start to unpack that other thing now? Well, yeah. How uh, does the, how true, does the true life? Yeah. How does, yeah. how mm -hmm. does Christ, how does salvation change my understanding of what life is? Mm -hmm. I mean, think about when death has the final word, when death is the only given, then my resources are limited. Um, I'd better make the most of life. And that's very often the expense of others. Um, you know, I need to outrun. I need to compete. Competition, in some sense, you could say, is one of those phenomena of death in mm. our lives. Something that really sort of severs my relationships with others. I need to um, very often make the most of life at the expense of creation itself um, uh, to use, but very often also exploit its resources um, and so on and so forth. So um, let me just say this, this will be kind of the last word on the, of the phenomena of death, because in some sense you could characterize the phenomena of death as progressing relationlessness, mm. right? Uh, we are brought together only to compete, outdo each other, um, outrun, because the sooner the sooner you can make it and get ahead of everybody else, the more successful, the richer your life will be, mm -hmm. right? And in some sense, you could think of death really as even when God threatens us with death, because he ultimately is the one who can manage death. We can't do it. Um, when God threatens us with death, um, it's only really a pronouncement of, as you want it, so be it. Uh, and you could characterize death, this has been kind of a definition that, that I've worked with, that insofar as relationlessness is kind of a life in death, uh, no genuine community, um, then what happens in death is that that last relationship that I've been trying to preserve at all costs, my relationship to myself, is undercut. And in some sense, it is at that point, that is the moment of biological death, you could say, where God says, as you want it, so be it. Um, 
it's not just the atrophying of all of life's relationships to the neighbor, to certainly to God, um, to creation as something that sustains me. Uh, it's also the, the dying of that last relationship. And in that sense, I think all of the phenomena of death, um, this is what the German theologian Eberhard Jungel first uh, sort of theorized um, or, or theorized in such a way that I've, that I've learned from it, uh, death as relationlessness. Mm -hmm. So then um, let's think about life as in some sense the opposite of that. At least this is this is going to be the, 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 the way we've argued, but this is not the order of being. This is the order of our argument because in some sense you could say death is always parasitical on life. Mm -hmm. um, death always death doesn't have any meaning in and of itself. It only it only is seen when it when it destroys. Mm -hmm. So uh, how are we created and how are we redeemed? And you could say insofar as God in Christ is for me with his entire being, then my finitude doesn't change. But it makes all the difference that God constitutes the boundary of my being, right? That, that I rest in God, not lean towards death. Uh, and insofar as God is for me with, his, with the entirety of his being, you could say that uh, God makes more of me than I could ever possibly make of myself. Hmm. Because there is no amount of outrunning, outcompeting of anyone that would give me the status of somebody like God's child, somebody who is God on their side. Mm -hmm. Right? And God is for me, and I don't have to compete for it. He is for me surely by his grace. Mm -hmm. He doesn't ask me to he doesn't ask me to compete for it. And he reiterates that to me in the in the sacramental realities for the, of the church. I don't have to qualify for baptism mm -hmm. the eucharistic table is the kind of table where there's always room for all the sort of poor of the town uh and there is always the good word of forgiveness which allows my past to get old mm -hmm. uh and really my gaze to be redirected to to, to christ who is the author and finisher of our of, of, of our faith mm -hmm. so there's a certain kind of uncoiling of my being insofar as when I'm, you know, when I'm in death, I subsume all my other relationships to everything around me to serve the one relationship that is dominant, the relationship of me to me. Mm -hmm. Everything in some sense becomes subservient to it, mm -hmm. uh, is meant to enhance me. And that's the relationlessness because that's very utilitarian. Mm -hmm. Here, if God is for me, I don't have to be for myself. And the question almost becomes, who can I, who can I be there for? Mm -hmm. If God is all for me, who can I be for? And, and you could see, you could see that there's in, in true life, there is a certain kind of uncoiling of being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, uh, my being becomes richer. People don't become means to an end, which is me. Um, they are more that you, you could even, you could even think of the neighbor in that kind of a vision as somebody who enables my humanity to shine insofar as for me to be truly human, to be truly living, is to have somebody by my side that I can be there for. Um, you know, sometimes I ask my students, um, you know, why did Adam need Eve if God was everything God was cracked up to be? <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> right? yeah. Um, and in some sense, if, if you have God for you, um, you uh, the other basically enables 
you to sort of shine in your humanity, but also the other is there um, not as a means, but as somebody who we give ourselves to, mm -hmm. uh, who we also put on the way Christ sort of put us on, uh, going to going back to Philippians two, who we serve, who we who we basically um, are interested in, in you know that that person thrive, that that person flourish. Yeah, we don't we don't need the other. Mm -hmm. In that in that old sense that is like I need what you have in order to sustain me. I need you to mm -hmm. be, you know. Or, but or I can only be what I am because you're not you're not where I am or you don't have what I am, right? Right. Right. <laughs> uh, only only to give me the thumbs up because right. uh, you 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 validate me precisely by your um, by your destitution, if you like. Right. But there's another way in which it sounds like we can talk, which is like. Like the order of things needs there to be others in order mm -hmm. for precisely for me to not need them for myself, but to be for uh -huh. them kind of imaging mm -hmm. forth God. Um, yeah. It's yeah, like for my life, for my life to shine for you're right. This is, this is really about the image of God, but also to enable their humanity to shine as well. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I'm, I'm sort of cycling back into connecting to eternal life real life has to be of a different mm -hmm. quality has to be of a different Correct. totally different kind and i'm seeing the the kind of life that god has this is a question that i comes up a lot right it's did god need to create well of course not like he doesn't mm -hmm. need anything on the right. other hand <laughs> to have something to be this kind of for for like he's he he mm -hmm. pure graciousness pure love he creates, mm -hmm. and it's not a need. It's not a, I have to have it. I need worship. I need anything. It's a, yeah. but I'm for it. I, mm -hmm. And I want to have something I'm for, mm -hmm. <laughs> purely and, and simply for, without without needing anything in response. Yeah. A certain kind of self-giving. You know, um, theologians yeah. would say that that it's, it's, not, it's not necessary for God to create, but it is certainly fitting for God right. to create. Or right. you could say that, that insofar as God is sort of life that overflows with itself, Right. It's life abundant. Uh, it's a kind of life that leans towards unity right. with that which is not, right? That right. wants to give itself. And, uh, and it's, not, it's not surprising that God should, right. um, precisely because he's that kind of being. And you could say that that's exactly sort of what it means for us to be in the image of God, to so overflow with life. Yeah. Uh, because again, if God is there for me right. with his own human face, yeah. If God makes more of me than even the best of my works could ever possibly deliver, yeah, uh, which at any rate always deliver at the expense of others. If I were to resort to my own works, um, if God is there for me, then I also, in some sense, overflow with life. Right? That that right. verse in in Colossians that our lives are hid with Christ in God, um, yeah. right? Kind of open, it, being open to the surprises, and really being open to living precisely again um, down here in the world. Um, right? Christians don't run away from the world. They don't run from that which is dying. They already, in the here and now, exhibit the kind of rich life that, uh, that they have in God. Um, right? I mean, th this is Jesus' statement. Whoever loses his life will yeah. gain it. Whoever, whoever will seek, you know, whoever seeks his life um, at all costs, will will lose it because that ultimately yeah. there's. The, I think even in Jesus's words, there's a certain kind of indication that we can live our lives in such a way that they only spell out death. Yeah, and we can live in such a way 
or even die to ourselves in such a way that that death means receiving myself from God mm -hmm. in a far richer way than I could possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. Okay. But this, okay, so, but this is really hard, Peter. So this is sort of bringing it right down to really practical stuff that I think, one, questions I have, questions that I know I, my listeners have. And, and there's two questions that I'm thinking of. One is, if what you're saying is true, and I think it is, it's like really hard to understand that the that the way I could live this life, I don't have other words for it. It's almost like an invitation to what, what the world would call a kind of frivolity. Like I just don't have to care about securing myself. Mm -hmm. I just don't have to worry about preserving myself, my relation to myself. Uh -huh. But okay. But the problem is the problem is I don't do that. And so that's, that's, that's the hard part. And the second, the really yeah. hard question is, you said Christians, I think can live this way. And, and my, my response is, well, one, they don't. And two, I don't. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> so how yeah. Does, yeah. does that make sense? It, it, it does make sense. And you know, that's why, um, if you recall, I, uh, I ended my article with a discussion of martyrdom in the early church, because I think, um, uh, mm -hmm. That was when probably the when the church was probably at its most eloquent in many ways about sort of what constituted true life, right? The Christians that were mm. uh, put in the arena or otherwise, you know, led off to execution, um, whose bodies were being used as somebody else's script, namely, mm -hmm. this is the body of a hater of humankind, and so on and so forth. They 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 spoke very 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 eloquently with this martyrdom that they obviously didn't seek, were not encouraged to seek, uh, mm -hmm. but some of them were called to it to just simply in their, in their own dying to exhibit the power of life that transcends any kind of management of life by death. Because obviously, you know, you look at the Romans, the Romans were only trying to say, we are preserving life. Mm -hmm. um, you hate our gods who have blessed us so richly. You deserve to die. We are killing you precisely because you are a hater of humankind, and so on and so forth, right? And the Christians, in many ways, uh, took, their, took agency in their own hands, right? They would, they, just, they, 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 they would not allow these martyrs to be used as objects, that somebody sort of wrote their own script, mm. literally into their bodies, but, mm. but they had a certain kind of agency. Now, having said all that, obviously, martyrdom, and that was recognized already in the early church, is a unique calling from God. Mm. Like I said, it's not. It, we're not encouraged. That if you read the martyrdom of Polycarp, uh, we're not encouraged to seek it. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a it is a unique vocation. Um, I think for most of us, I would say there are sort of two attitudes that um, uh, that converge. On the one hand, there are these realities of the church. And again, automatically, they may not quite deliver what we hope them to deliver, but, but, but there is some merit in the repetition. Again, the fact that in baptism, we are invited to experience the agency of God. You don't have to qualify for it. 
there's no preconditions. It's not like uh, some sort of mystery re religion of the ancient church where you have sort of pay your way into different stages of initiation, right? Mm -hmm. It's free for all. There's a table where food never runs out over against this sort of worldly notion of competition. That if I don't get to the table first, there's going to be nothing left, right? We have certain ways of um, reminding us that this is what constitutes true life, that there is God's promise, which can never be undermined by death anymore, because Christ is on the, on the, on the other side of death. He is for us the way he was for the prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors, and even his own killers um, and the Pharisees in his own, in his own day. Yeah. Uh, so it's this sort of, you know, I totally uh, agree with you. We need to be regrounded in that. We need to be reminded of that constantly. And and leaning into that um, is is a project where we are sustained by grace, um, but it doesn't happen instantaneously. But I think the beauty of it all is the fact that Christians can live their lives really in the world, uh, live it fully in community, in being, there, in being there for others, not just who are like me, but who are vastly different from me. Um, there's a certain kind of um, richness overflowing with being that we are called to, and, and that we can, we can exhibit that life. So here you can see that, that perhaps, you know, um, as I like to say to my students, we can exhibit that in however halting a fashion and however difficult it might be for us. But I would say we need to remember that our business is faithfulness, not faith, right? Mm -hmm. In and of ourselves, we don't have the resources to transform the world. Um, but we are also told to be confident in the power of God's spirit mm -hmm. um, who comes and conveys himself in precisely also how we live our Christian lives in service to others. Yeah, it, it feels, I don't know, it feels simultaneously heavy and, and freeing. Like mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a longing in me, I think, really deeply to be able to live. And I, so much of what I want to be doing in this work is calling myself as much as anyone else to the putting my theological money where my mouth is. Like right. I say that I have a source of life that I don't need to defend myself, that I don't need to put you down for my own gain. Mm -hmm. I, I say all that stuff because I believe that what you're saying, you know, I believe that this is true. I believe that Jesus mm -hmm. has actually transformed the world. Yeah. And, 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 and that his promise actually allows me to mm -hmm. uncoil myself, like allows mm -hmm. me to stop being so concerned about myself. Mm -hmm. But there's that. It's a real act of faith. It's a real act of faithfulness to then go and act that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think what I would say here is um, that maybe a piece that we need to explore is precisely sort of the shape of the Christian community mm. that these realities give rise to. I would, I would contrast that again with Heidegger's notion of being towards death, mm. right? It's a very kind of, it's a very individualistic sort of burden, right? Over mm. against the crowd, the people that don't reflect on anything, that just sort of engage in idle chatter. Mm -hmm. um, 
here I am sort of supposed to courageously lean into my own death, rise above it all and be better. Yeah. Um, I don't think the Christian life is ever meant to be an individual undertaking, um, right? In these realities of the church and the community and being for others, um, we are being knit together and, uh, and having that community where people come in with different gifts, where, as I like to say, difference makes a difference, where we are sort of being knit together into the spirit's temple or a body of Christ, that that's really sort of the location of our Christian life. We are saved, not, again, in a kind of a Gnostic way, whisked out of here individually, but we are saved unto peoplehood, you might say, right? We are sort of saved to be to be God's people, and, and it's already here that we have this, this summons. Now, that might be an even taller order. I don't know. Um, well, because, may, go, go ahead. Well, maybe not, though, because it's like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess the way I'm conceiving or conceptualizing that is my, my original kind of instinct was, holy crap, I've got a lot of work to do to be living like this. Mm-hmm. But maybe if it's, as you're saying, it's not a individualistic calling for my heroism of my faith mm-hmm. there there's a pressure that's off because yeah. now i'm i i in the community of my church in the community of my fellow christians that i have i'm doing what i can do and i and they i don't need to be thinking so much about whether i'm putting my theological money where my mouth yeah. is i just kind of get to live mm-hmm. and there's that that's a kind of a radical way to do it i think but mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of leaning into being saints together rather than individual heroes of our sort of Christian stories. Yeah. Do you think, does that mean, does that mean like, in a, I suppose in a very practical way that a lot of this is done kind of unconsciously. It's like a lot of this is done just when I'm talking to the the friend at church mm-hmm. and just being there for him. I'm not really mm-hmm. thinking about whether or not I'm living this new life in Christ or not. I'm just kind of being a friend. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, carrying, raking the little old lady's lawn that, that needs mm-hmm. it. And, and vice versa. Like she's also being compassionate to me because I can kind of be a blowhard in Sunday school class. And, right. and, right. and so like, it's not so much about whether I'm not a blowhard in Sunday school class or not. It's more about the fact that in that room, somebody was actually able to live kind of for me in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even really notice it. Is that, yeah. am I catching it? I think so. Um, I think it, it, it has moments of discernment mm. uh, and it has moments of sort of kind of unreflectively being there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's, again, if, if God is for us with his own human face, with the totality of his own being in such a way that we don't need to outperform anybody in terms of our works as if we're competing for God's favor, mm-hmm. I can be less perhaps paranoid about the quality of my works. I don't have to sort of make sure that they are perfect before I give them away to the, to those that need them. Yeah. Because even if they were perfect, um, once my work is out there. People can make of it all kinds of things. It can be misunderstood. Sometimes it's yeah. given there. I can, you know, but, but it, again, it doesn't, it doesn't affect my standing where it matters. And I can be in some sense reckless with my work. So I think there's deliberation, certainly. 
but there's also a certain kind of recklessness and a certain sort of leaning into simply being and living um, as opposed to overthinking yeah. it. Yeah, that's the part that feels so kind of radical to me that I that's so contra our normal way of thinking. And, and, and I'm, I appreciate it. The phrase that you keep using, by the way, is a phrase that I'm going to steal from you because it's fantastic. That God makes more of us than we make of ourselves, that he is for us with the entirety of his being. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me is, it's like meditate on that long enough and kind of the rest <laughs> of this takes care of itself. All the other questions I would ask sort of resolve in that, mm-hmm. you know, God has made himself for me in Christ in the face. How did you say that? He is towards me with his own human face. He is himself a friend and a neighbor to me. He is sort of the good Samaritan to me. Um, You you know, you could put it that way. But but I think think it's important that uh, to think that even at creation, God already made more of us than we could possibly ever have made of ourselves because we, we didn't exist. Um, (laughs) He, he made, he made uh, his own creatures, people, but also situated in kind of on the vast tapestry of creation. God always, there's no, even if we were sinless, Mm -hmm. our works could never win the favor of God, not should we ever, uh, and we should never hope sort of that 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 would have been the right sort of procedure, Mm -hmm. because that is to to give a lie to God, that somehow he has to be enticed towards me by his own works, Mm -hmm. whereas in reality, my works belong precisely towards the neighbor who needs them. Um, and I think, and I think it's. I mean, I mean, you're absolutely right that it's, it's, it's a. To me, it's a fundamental understanding of our relationship to God that He makes more of us than we could ever make of ourselves, and that is true not just of redemption but also of creation. Well, that's near and dear to my heart in this ministry. Like, it's the the the, the fundamental like problem I think most of us face in in our sinful fallen world, and and it seems to me to be what the fall was largely about is mm-hmm. a shift in our view of who God is. And we, mm-hmm. the, the image of God, the character of God, the, the, the picture we have of what kind of a guy this is mm-hmm. shifted away from yeah. his entirety of his being is for me. Even mm-hmm. in creation, he's made more of me than I could make myself. Yeah. And always, and that, and two, well, he responds to me. He yeah, he, and, he reacts to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And think think also about what what the importance of that for our own ethical life. Because uh, if God is all for me and makes more of me than I could ever make of myself, for me to be in the image of God is really to sort of approach the neighbor in that kind of a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I make more of you than perhaps you've made of yourself. Mm-hmm. Now it doesn't mean that I cannot judge your works. Mm-hmm. But in some sense, be, even before I see your works as either worthy of praise or condemnation, mm-hmm. you matter to me mm-hmm. as somebody who God also cares for. And in that sense, I approach you in, in, with, that, with this, or I should approach you with the same kind of generosity. I make more of you than perhaps you give me warrant by your own works. I approach you in friendship before, I, before we talk about sort of deeds, misdeeds, uh, merits, and demerits, and so on and so forth. Which that, that is the qualitative difference of life. Okay. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. Right. Like that's the actual mm-hmm. qualitative difference, which is... Yeah. And you could say that even... And here you could say, even in the midst of death, 
we can already be in life. Yep. 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 That that's probably the place we need to end, Peter. I sort of a random kind of ending question, and hopefully this will make some sense. I often get the sense that the kind of God that we've been describing <laughs> feels foreign to many of my Christian friends. And and I'm not sure, maybe this isn't a question other than just an observation. It's odd and it's both odd and it makes perfect sense to me. Mm -hmm. But like, I think a lot of us Christians, when we're when we're actually told that he, God, what it means for God to be God is that he is for me with the entirety of his being, mm -hmm. even before I was made. Mm -hmm. And certainly now after sin, like that just, it almost feels like a foreign religion to some mm -hmm. of us, I think. Um, yeah. And I, that there is no other God because he, he sort of has made himself that way for me right for me to look for a truer god be you know beyond that god but i'll just simply respond to that by uh, quoting genesis 3 right what is what is the serpent trying to undermine did god really say okay and even if he did did he really mean it mm -hmm. right in some sense the serpent is um trying to put in doubt the reliability and goodness of god god yeah. is not good and therefore he's no good mm -hmm. You'd better fend for yourselves. You'd better yeah. sort of um, compete with him for that which makes you divine, right? And 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 to me, um, this 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 might be a topic for another conversation at some point, right? Uh, yeah. In one of the articles that I wrote on the relevance of Luther for modernity, uh, I focus on Luther's statement that it is very difficult to believe in the goodness of God. It yeah. is not difficult to believe in something supernatural. It's not difficult to believe, um, you know, and even even if you look at Israel, right? Israel, it's not that Israel sort of stops believing in God. Right. That is sort of acknowledging his existence. It's just the fact that they don't think Yahweh is good or any good, or perhaps they think safety in numbers and, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, right. There's a set there's, that what really is at stake in the gospel is not just the the existence of god yeah that's easy enough yeah. it's the goodness of god in such a way that i can stake my whole being on it and yes. in that sense also die to myself and receive myself from god yes. because owing myself to god i really owe myself to god yes. yes yeah well thank you here here's the takeaway that i'm taking away <laughs> whether you like it or not but listeners yeah. i kind of want to offer this to you as the takeaway just take that phrase God is for you with the entirety of his being. He makes more of you than you could make of your ever make of yourself. Like that's the thing that the church is about, the sacraments are about, the the, the proclamation of the gospel is about. Mm. Meditate on that, and I think all the other questions sort of melt away. I really do. Um uh Peter, thank you. Uh I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um any Anything last thing you'd like to offer? Any question I should have asked you? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. I think you said it so well that I don't know that. <laughs> but I want to. Then I want to trump that. I think your. I think your summary was really quite excellent, and I would just have to repeat what you just said. And perhaps, perhaps there's some merit in that, but but not always. 
Well, thank you. I, that that so back into the sinful world that vindicates me. I feel like you know I've actually competed well enough in this conversation. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so thank yeah. you, listeners. Thank you for being with us. Um, please shoot us your questions if you'd like to hear more on this topic or other topics. We're going to put a link to both. Uh, this article, I think, Peter, it is free on, I saw it on your bio. Um, mm -hmm. And a few others yeah, but... as well as I think the one that you mentioned about Luther is up there as well. So we'll put links to all of those in the show notes if you'd like to read those or get your hands on the, the originals. Um, and, and yeah, send us your questions. We'd love to to follow up on this with you. And in the meantime, may the grace of Christ go with you wherever the road takes you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Signpost In, a nonprofit Christian ministry dedicated to helping people connect with God and find direction. We offer spiritual direction, retreats, and lots of other resources like this podcast. Please visit us at signpostin.org to learn more. We especially want to thank our generous donors who support our work and keep this podcast going. If you've benefited from something you've heard on this show, please consider supporting us by making a tax-deductible gift at signpostin.org donate. That's signpostin.org slash donate. And thank you.